Good afternoon and welcome. <coughs> Sounds good. <laughs> welcome to Hudson. Uh, my name is Lee Smith. I'm a senior fellow here at Hudson Institute, uh, and I wanted to introduce our, um, our estimable panelists. And I, I think we have a very interesting panel here for you this afternoon uh, with, the, uh, with the deadline set to expire next Monday, November 24th for the uh, interim agreement, the joint plan of action. The question is uh, not just will there be a deal, but what will it look like? Um, and if there's not a deal uh, right away, what, what is going to happen? And I think we've assembled really a, a formidable panel here to address all sorts of, all sorts of different is issues. Um, to my immediate left is Mr. David Albright. Um, to his left is Halel Fradkin, a colleague of mine at Hudson. Michael Duran, who's just joined us here at Hudson Institute. Uh, and to his left is Ray Takei. So between the particular nuclear issues and American strategy in the region um, and the nature of the Islamic Republic and the shape of the regime, I think we've assembled really quite an excellent panel here to fill out a number of different questions uh, and issues. So thank you again for being here. And uh, Mr. Albright, if you'd like to begin. Okay, thank you. Um, I think I, the first thing I'd like to say is, is that I, I think the JPA has has been um, has been a success. I mean, it, it, there's problems in it, obviously, um, and it provides a mechanism to craft a long-term deal um, that can be a success. But as you all know, accomplishing that is going to be very difficult. Now, I, I should say, we investigate the uh, re quarterly reports by the International Atomic Energy Agency. Um, Giving the status of Iran's program, and and the some of the conditions in the in the interim deal are fraying a bit, but I don't want to say Iran is in, is is uh, violating the agreement, um, but it but it's not meeting the terms of the agreement as well as, for example, we at at ISIS would would think should be the case. And so I think if if a deal is extended, the provisions in the interim deal have to be looked at again and to make sure. To make sure that that um, Iran is going to be meeting those conditions, uh, in terms of a a good deal, I mean sometimes the phrase is used "good just good enough." Um, I, I think the U.S. has been pretty firm, and, and I get reports from the negotiations that you know they are sticking to getting low numbers of centrifuges. Um, they're they want to have uh, limits on centrifuge R&D. They want to limit the stocks of low-enriched uranium uh, that Iran would possess. Some would, uh, in fact, a proposal to send a lot of the stocks of low-enriched uranium out of the country. Um, Iran has been systematically refusing many of those conditions, as, as you're aware, particularly on the question of centrifuge numbers. They want much larger numbers than what the U.S. would like. The U.S. is, I see, I see them as willing to compromise on the numbers to a certain extent to let them go up from their original position, which is tended to be around 1,000, 2,000 IR-1 centrifuges, and they let them go up. I mean, our, I'll confess that ISIS, our position has always been uh, we would accept 4,000 IR-1s, that that would be our baseline. Um, if you throw in limits on stocks, reduce the amount of particularly 3.5% low-enriched uranium, from its current roughly seven, 8,000 tons, I forget how much, um, that's in hexafluoride form, uh, you reduce that down to 500 kilograms, you've certainly strengthened um, the deal from our point of view. But 
but for us the baseline is 4,000 with not many limits on the stocks. And so it, um, we see that that can be a workable deal. Where we, where we have questioned the administration is, is that we're, my group, we're nonproliferation experts. We've worked on a lot of cases going back into the 80s. And, and it's a very big mistake in our view if you don't deal with these past, these past questions about Iran's work on nuclear weapons. And particularly when you note in the IA reports, they say it could be ongoing, at least parts of it. Not a structured nuclear weapon program as apparently existed prior to 04, but parts of it go on. And, it, and in the verification scheme, it's, the IA has learned through very hard experience a dramatic failure in the Iraqi case in 1991 that you cannot let, you have to know the history. If you're going to know the present and know the risks, and know if there's undeclared facilities, activities, you have to know the history. And there's a risk that this agreement is going to push aside. In a sense, we would say throw the IA under the bus. And that is a very bad idea because if Iran is able to weaken the IA, then how is the verification going to go in the future when it's the IA that's going to have to verify the long-term agreement? And so I would say no deal until Iran has shown concrete progress on addressing these past military nuclear issues. It doesn't have to come clean in the sense that South Africa did or, or Iraq did in 1995 about its past program, but it's going to have to show concrete progress, including allowing the IE to visit military sites and to try to, to start to address this concern addressing all the concerns that the IA can be delayed until after the agreement. But I would say don't get an agreement until Iran has demonstrated concrete progress. I'm sorry, Dave. I, 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 this is, um, excuse me for interrupting. I'm just very curious. Is that one of the sticking points right now, do you believe, in the, uh, in the negotiations? It was. I don't, know if, I, I don't know what the U.S. position is right now. It has been they want I'm, – I'm not seeing anything that would differ from the U.S. position on this, but whether – whether that's one of the compromises, there's certainly been a clamor in Washington, let me, let me just call it that, that, of people saying the past doesn't matter, all we have to do is have good verification from here on out. But I can tell you, the IA learned that's a big mistake and a recipe for failure. And it was a recipe for failure in South Africa. That's what South Africa demanded when it gave up nuclear weapons. And the IA quickly reached a point it could not verify that South Africa had given up, had abandoned all its nuclear weapons. It had to know the past in order to reconstruct what had actually taken place and to, to declare in the end that South Africa gave them up. So let me – another issue – and I, I don't want to – I think I'm over. But no, it's, that's quickly. fine. Please, please. Um, there's many issues, and, I, and I'm happy to talk about them. Um, one of the ones that we – I know we've worked on quite a bit in the last three months, maybe since early July, was um, it's obvious that Iran is not going to limit its missile program. Um, it's also obvious that Iran continues to go out and buy things illicitly for its nuclear, missile, and military programs. Um, and, that, and that the legitimacy of the efforts to stop that are centered in the UN Security Council resolutions. And, and in there are sanctions uh, banning uh, Iran's procurement of what we call proliferation-sensitive goods. The deal cannot let go of those sanctions. That's one of the – Iran demands it. But the reality is, is that you have to keep the UN Security Sanction Council sanctions in place. It may be called something else under a new Security Council resolution, but, but the, the sanctions themselves have to stay in place. And that is an administration position. I mean, I'd be very clear about that. 
that you can't construct a verification regime um, without it. Um, you, Iran buys these things illegally. Uh, it's very active. German government just announced how active mm -hmm. they are still in Germany. Um, they have some several hundred investigations a year involving sanctions violations, by, and two-thirds of them involve Iran. Um, they expect that the same thing to happen this year. They were reporting on two previous years. And so you have to, you have to keep these sanctions in place um, in order to ensure that Iran isn't buying what it needs to put together a covert centrifuge plant or other nuclear program. And so it's – and the way it would work is you can create an exemption for authorized nuclear programs um, where Iran, like it can for Bushehr reactor, at least to getting things from Russia – for the Bushehr reactor <coughs> is allowed under the UN Security Council sanctions. You can create an ex other exemptions for authorized nuclear programs that would continue under the deal, and then you just have to verify it much more intensely than you would if it was for the Bushehr reactor. But that that mechanisms to do that are, are apparent and have been discussed in the negotiations. So I, let me just end there. But I think these are the PMD issue, as we call it, the possible military dimensions, the ongoing the need for U.N. Security Council sanctions, I think, are two important issues that haven't uh, – one has been discussed ad nauseum, I will confess, but I don't think it's been framed properly in terms of the need for ver adequate verification and the, and, the, and the risk of throwing the IA under the bus. The second one I don't, I don't think is, has been discussed much at all. So let me end there and thank you. That's terrific. Thanks very much. And we'll, we'll, we'll come back to uh, especially those, those two items that you, um, that you noted. Uh, Ray, I believe you are um, – sure. this is the order that we've <coughs> – Thanks. Uh, let me just uh, start by suggesting where we are hoping to end up if there is going to be an agreement, a, a comprehensive uh, final agreement. What we're hoping to end up is that Iran, uh, that Secretary of State has said, would be a year away from the breakout point uh, through various – limitations and so on. So essentially where we're hoping to end up, if everything works out right, uh, is, is Iran becoming a threshold nuclear state. Uh, and that threshold is long enough for it to be some <coughs> detective measures should there be a violation. And where we're hoping to end up is an agreement that keeps Iran in that threshold state for 10 years or, or so after which uh, the decision to move toward an industrial program is a national decision, is Iran's decision, unencumbered by international sanction or censure or comment. That, that's where we're hoping to end up today. Uh, after 12 years of uh, negotiations, <coughs> these negotiations, as I, I see people kind of concerned about the, the longevity of negotiations, it's hard to be concerned about <coughs> longevity of negotiations that has thus far lasted 12 years. Uh, but there are people concerned about that. Uh, the Iran nuclear negotiations are the second longest negotiations in modern Middle East without producing a conclusive result. The Israeli-Palestinian one are the first and will always remain the first. But they had a 40-year lead time, to be fair. Uh, uh, so what I'm going to kind of step back and over the 12 years, the Western approach to Iran has been predicated on a number of assumptions, uh, and I'll t touch on three of them. Uh, these assumptions are impeccably logical and, as you kind of look back, somewhat deficient. 
first of all, the entire notion of a two-track policy, two-track policy being that escalating economic sanctions will eventually produce an interlocutor in Tehran prone to negotiate an arms control agreement and adhere to it scrupulously. That idea was actually born in Condi Rice's State Department. It constitutes her most enduring legacy. Uh, that, that notion, uh, which, as I said, is Im logically impeccable when you think about it. It's American pragmatism at its best, and it ascribed to the other side a set of economic determinations, which may or may not be the case. Uh, but if you kind of step back outside this American pragmatism, or ironically, Marxism, where economics is the determinate factor in all decision-making, uh, you realize when Iranian hardliners talk about economics, they actually, and the Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei has been very clear about this, and for a long, long many years, they talk about the notion of economic uh, resistance economy, an economy that actually <coughs> kind of veers away from oil dependency and tries to develop Iran's indigenous industries and local markets, Central Asia, Baghdad, and Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, in a sense, there's a, there's a kind of a pledge of degree of national poverty f as a means of independence. That you really cannot be an independent country if you are so thoroughly dependent on an export commodity whose prices you don't control. And that, so they're essentially talking about developing an economy which is much more resilient self-sufficient and less reliant on international markets and international lending institution. And so a measure of economic segregation is not necessarily something they view with, 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 with uh, anxiety. The second assumption that is more recent uh, is it's been, I think, the perception of the United States. And you saw a story in New York Times a couple of days ago where an unnamed administration official said, you know, what Iranians can look for is a narrative of success. Is so they can go back to their public and say, we have enriched uranium, and that enrichment right has been recognized. <coughs> and there are some symbols of success, parity with the Western powers, recognition of the right to enrich. And in exchange for those symbolic concessions, they would accept limitations on their program along the lines that David and others have talked about. If you kind of, and if you kind of look at what Iranians are saying, they're saying we want an industrial-sized nuclear program. They've been very clear about that. Uh, they're not looking for symbolic concessions to tailor a certain narrative of success. They're kind of looking for the reality of success. Uh, and so we always assume that by giving them certain symbolic concessions, they will retreat from their demands of having an industrial program. That's kind of put you in the worst possible position, and they have pocketed some important concessions, such as recognition of the right to enrich, and not, have not accepted the notion that they should forfeit the industrialization of their program in exchange for that symbolic concession. Uh, so again, we're kind of not paying attention to what the Iranians are saying, or we want to kind of think about it in different terms. Finally, and this is a more recent uh, innovation. Uh, the, the idea that there is this new government in Iran 
the government of President Rouhani and Minister Zarif. And it, it is true, it is a pragmatic government, that it is somehow through American arms control policy we can fortify their domestic position and therefore congeal the era of pragmatism in Iran, potentially pragmatism at home and pragmatism in terms of its international relations. That attributes a level of ingenuity to American foreign policy that I think is not <laughs> meet the record of, uh, you know, I, I, I've been doing this, I, I have to say, much to my chagrin for nearly two decades. I, I think, I'm not saying this for self-grandizement because I think it's been a terrible mistake. But, you know, uh, and I, I can't understand the opaque Iranian politics and how to manipulate its factions to the advantage of the West through the agency of an arms control agreement. So that attributes a level of ingenuity and visibility into the Iranian system, which I think is missing. But I think that was largely behind the decision to have the joint plan of action. Uh, because the American position prior to that was, you know, we're tired of this. We, let's give them one more deal and think about what we're going to do next. Joint plan of action was an interim agreement to allow Hassan Rouhani to sort of fortify his position at home, consolidate his power, and therefore usher Iran into era of pragmatism in terms of its regional policy and in terms of its nuclear policy and in terms of its domestic political uh, balance of power. That, that's a big idea and I think is proven largely an impractical one. Uh, I just say one more thing because I know my time is expiring. The Islamic Republic changed, in my view, irrevocably in the aftermath of 2009 uh, fraudulent election. To be very simple about it, there were always three factions in Iranian politics, the left, the middle, and the right. Uh, that's as simple as you can get. Uh, and the left was largely excised from body politics. <coughs> right now you have a center-right government whose purpose is uh, it's a much more of a consensus government. There's much more agreement. The factionalism, division, and dissent that have historically plagued the Iranian polity is actually not that obvious. There is more meeting of minds than there is. So in a sense, we're trying to manipulate a factional politics where factional politics doesn't really exist anymore. Not that these actors don't disagree on, on a variety of things, perhaps on important things, but we're trying to manipulate a factional rivalry that doesn't exist anymore. If you, if you told me in 1997, with the rise of the reform movement, that we're going to try to manipulate this thing, I would say, okay, because there's a real left, and it had real democratic aspirations, and the real aspirations of a more moderate foreign policy abroad, and it would be interesting in the United States to try to have those people consolidate their power, but that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, so we're trying to manipulate the factional politics in a government of consensus. Uh, we're looking for something that isn't there. And those are, I think, some of the assumptions that have guided American policy and European policy for a long time. If you kind of think about each of them individually, they're not illogical, and people who came up with them are not unintelligent, they just seem unaffected by some of the realities of the Iranian politics. I'll leave it at that. Ray, that's fantastic. Terrific. I, I just wanted to say to come back to the Arab-Israeli <laughs> peace process, we actually do have two peace agreements that have come from that. So the, the Iranian, the Iranian negotiations may be more futile. We have two interim agreements on Iran. Okay. We had a joint plan of action right. and a European agreement from 2003-2005. <laughs> 
Mr. Duran, if you would, uh, I think it's, I think actually uh, Ray's um, take is going to be a, a good lead into this. So. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Lee. Thanks for having me, and uh, thanks to all of you for coming. And um, Ray's comments were a perfect um, lead in because I'm almost entirely in agreement with everything that he said. Well, don't say that. Well, I'm <laughs> I was just, I was just being diplomatic. Term, the most imperfect. No, 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 it's perfect. perfect. But I'm now I'm going to, now I'm going to disagree with him a little bit um, uh, in that. I'm not sure. There's, there's two ways to look at the Obama foreign policy. One is that it has the goals that Ray described, and then I agree with Ray's critique of those goals. But there's another possibility which I think we have to entertain. Um, it's actually what I believe, but I have to admit that when, when pushed very hard, um, uh, I, don't have a smoke, uh, I don't have a smoking gun. Um, so um, I, I, this is somewhat speculative. Um, but I, I don't think they're actually trying to do that. The White House is trying to do what, what Ray said. I think the whole, let's call it Rouhani fever or the Rouhani narrative that we're working with Rouhani in order to elevate that faction uh, 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 in, uh, in Iran is a convenient story and a convenient way of blunting the criticism of what they're actually trying to do. Um, which is to downgrade the importance of the Iranian um, uh, of, of the conflict with Iran in general, and specifically the nuclear um, uh, the nuclear conflict in U.S. foreign policy. So that whereas every previous every previous president uh, since uh, the Iranian Revolution um, saw containing Iran as the uh, as a primary goal of the United States in the region, President Obama doesn't. Um, and he came into uh, he came into office in in 2009 without that without that goal. But he had a political problem, and the political problem is that um, uh, a large uh, segment of con a large and influential segment of Congress and the American people, um, as well as influential allies, don't agree with that don't agree with that goal. Um, and so, if you look at it that way, I mean, the narrative that the uh, that the administration is t is giving us is that. If we could just get past this impediment of the nuclear conflict, well, then there's all kinds of room for uh, cooperation or at least uh, um, uh, accommodation between the United States and, and Iran. And they're, and they're presenting it as if, as if this is the thing that is impeding that cooperation. But when you actually look at what they've been doing, especially over the last year, we've been moving into an alignment um, with Iran Despite the d despite the continuing existence of this um, uh, of this nuclear program, um, so I throw that I throw that out. I'm not going to spend too much more time talking about it because, like I said, it's a bit it's a bit speculative. But that's actually that's actually the way I see it. I think the president is uh, sees himself as changing the structure, um, not just of U.S.-Iranian relations, but of really the way the, the the entire Middle East order, and he's doing that by bringing Iran in. Um, let me just. Let me just work uh, for the rest of my comments on the assumption that everything that Ray said about the assumptions of American foreign policy is actually true, that they are trying to elevate one faction uh, uh, and that they, uh, they believe that this is the, west, the best way to go about it and so on. Uh, in that case, um, I would say that, uh, like Ray, uh, I don't think that they are going to actually achieve the goal that they have, that they have, they have set out to agree to, to, to achieve. And I, I, don't, um, uh, I don't completely agree with David Albright that the JPOA has been a good thing. Um, in fact, I think it has been a very, uh, uh, a very bad thing. I think within the narrow limits of the JPOA itself, 
it's um, it, it's a it, there's a lot of sense to it. I mean, the the administration has thought very very carefully about what are the key elements of the of the nuclear program that we need to limit in order to keep them from having an undetectable nuclear breakout. Um, they have uh, pushed aside every other question, focused in on those those core issues. They've gotten the Iranians to sit down and um, uh, and, uh, and and talk about them, um, and held out the possibility of a, uh, of a new relationship if the Iranians would agree to that. Now, if there was a whole different attitude on the part of the Iranians, and we saw some sign that there was actually a strategic shift on their part and a desire to join the international community uh, along the lines of what the, uh, the international community has, uh, uh, has defined as good behavior um, over, the last, um, over the last couple of decades, that would be one thing, but we don't actually see that. What the administration has done is it, it has created, a, uh, it has created a, a widespread sense of a strategic shift on the part of Iran, when actually the strategic shift has been almost entirely on the part of the United States. Um, uh, uh, David Albright said, you know, uh, I think um, very insightfully, that the administration is focused in on these issues of, um, of centrifuges and stockpile, and it has kind of pushed aside, uh, these are my words, not David Albright's, it's pushed aside the question of, of the history of the program, of the ballistic missiles, and so forth. But it's actually pushed aside a lot more than that. It's also pushed aside Iran's support for terrorism globally, Iran's tendency to undermine the sovereignty of its neighbors, like building up actors such as Hezbollah or the Shiite militias in Iraq, um, let alone its relationship with, uh, with uh, Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Um, <coughs> uh, 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 all of these things... We now no longer talk about, and, and occasionally American officials will say that we are containing Iran in the region, but I would uh, challenge anyone in this room to find uh, an example when we have actually carried out a policy over the last, um, over the last two or three years designed to counter Iran uh, in the region. We have, in effect, redefined the nature of the conflict between the United States and Iran to the question of centrifuges and stockpiles. And almost everything else is no longer uh, is no longer a matter of active concern um, uh, by the uh, by the administration, or the kind of concern that is going to lead us to take action. The result of this is uh, uh, is to two uh, I think two major um, uh, has had two we've had two major results from behaving this way. One is we have ceded leverage uh, to the to the Iranians. Because they have made, in the, in the arena of centrifuges and stockpiles, they have made um, concessions that are largely temporary and reversible. And in return for that, we have made, uh, we have made permanent and irreversible concessions, um, such as uh, giving them the right to enrich uh, uh, and so forth. Um, some, of the, some of the concessions we've made, you can argue that they are reversible, such as the sanctions relief. Um, and if, theoretically they are, but we have created a political climate that makes it very hard to go back to the kind of sanctions regime we had. And if we do go back to it, it's going to take, it's going to take a very long time before we bring to bear the kind of pressure that we had on them uh, uh, when, the, when, these ne- when these negotiations started. Um, at the same time, their program continues. They have a research and development, uh, they have a research and development uh, program that hasn't been stopped by the, by, by the JPOA, which means that uh, which means that if the negotiations stop, they can move ahead exponentially, uh, uh, very, very quickly, and we will not. We will not be able to go. We will not be able to turn the clock back to where, to where it was before. And the, the second thing that we find to ourselves, and I'll stop after this, 
is that, um, and I think Ray's comments were an especially good introduction to this, we have turned ourselves over the last year from being the representative of the international community, uh, uh, defining the path by which Iran can become a member in good standing of the international community, we've turned ourselves from that into a faction in the court of the Persian king. Right? We are now evaluating, we are now evaluating whether we should take this position or that position on whether it's going to elevate Rouhani or, under, or, 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 or undercut, uh, uh, undercut Rouhani. And I don't think that, uh, that it seeds leverage, but it, it, it also, uh, I think, sends a message to Iran of um, weakness on our part, and it shows that we can be manipulated. In the, in the New York Times article that Ray referred to, um, we, our officials are talking about we need a, a face-saving agreement for the Iranians. It seems to me that what we're actually looking for is a face-saving agreement for ourselves uh, so that we can say that we, uh, that, w- that we actually forced from the Iranians significant concessions when, when I look at it, all of the concessions have been on our side. Uh, I just want to make sure I have that phrase right. A faction in the court of the Persian king. I just want to, I, okay. So a, a memorable phrase. That's great. Um, thanks very much, Mike. Uh, Halal, if you would, uh, then, I'm, I'm, then I'll come back around and... Uh, yeah. Um, thanks, Lee, and thank all of you for coming. Um, I was asked about cleanup, um, and I think that means in the present case to sort of draw some uh, conclusions from what have, has already been said, uh, but also uh, with a view to what the, the ultimate object of uh, not so much this, this discussion, uh, but uh, the negotiations at hand, the question of the deal. Uh, is there going to be a deal of what sort will there what sort uh, might it be um, dr. Albright spoke about history uh, and I think that is really quite crucial um, the history uh, of the uh, weaponization program is terribly crucial uh, as well as the other history you cited of what the the real intention of some of the sanctions were and how they those would have to; those intentions would still have to be fulfilled, in, in the future. Um, uh, Ray raised the question of uh, whether we are taking seriously what the Iranians are saying, or one might even say whether we have been, and that too involves history. Wh- whether we've been taking the measure of what they've said and done over the past few years. I think if you take those two. Th- those are your, uh, and I would say we haven't been. Uh, I would agree with Ray um, uh, in a variety of the individual points, but overall, that we we have not we persuade ourselves that we understand what's going on, but uh, uh, the that which we say we think is going on is not, not true. If you take those two things together. I would, it, you know, the, the normal conclusion is we're not going to have a deal. Not any kind of deal which, um, whether in a week's time or six more months' time, that resembles something that should be, uh, that would be desirable, which would fulfill the various um, objectives which, it, which people have said this deal is about. Um, uh, Secretary of State Kerry said, yesterday, I think. The purpose of this deal is to persuade, allow Iran to persuade the world that its intentions are peaceful. 
um, I don't know <laughs> what would constitute such proof. I mean, uh, uh, I don't think it could be proved because it's the, those aren't their intentions. So uh, in principle, um, next Monday, um, the, the talk should end uh, with no deal. And um, it would be the business of uh, this administration and other countries to figure out what to do to do next. Um, um, what to do with a situation which um, uh, already um, goes beyond what is said to be an objective here. I think Ray mentioned uh, the objective of um, preventing it from becoming a threshold nuclear state. Um, it is a threshold nuclear state. We just don't know how, how close it is to the threshold, among other reasons because of the consideration that Dr. Albright mentioned. We don't know what the weaponization program is. We, on, on other counts, we know uh, a fair amount about how much enriched uranium they could produce. Um, uh, and we could argue about how much time it will take, but, but no one is saying that it would take them for um, years and years to produce enough. So uh, that's sort of where, where um, you know, the inning should end. But um, as in baseball, innings can be extended. <laughs> and uh, Mike, I think, suggested why that is likely to happen, because um, the administration uh, will not want to, to see this end, because it has, it has a very grand ambition, uh, which has been ably described here today, but in other things by Mike, of a, a different conception of the Middle East as a whole and our role in it. And uh, the, in, in that, the principal feature is an, a, a return of Iran to uh, the international community, but especially a return of Iran to its a dominant position in the Middle East as such, a return, perhaps a position even surpassing that which it under, enjoyed under the Shah. So um, they may the, that, that may keep things afloat. But it seems to me um, there's, there, someone else gets a vote in here, and that is the Iranian regime itself. Um, uh, it, it might um, agree to an extension of the talks, but it is in no way going, I think, to, uh, it, but it's going to be very clear that it agrees to few, if any, of the conditions that were laid out by Dr. Albright. Um, it won't accept reasonable limits on centrifuges. It will insist on absol absolutely on the removal of all sanctions. Um, so it may be that they're, uh, and they will do that, I think, because they think they are uh, succeeding through these negotiations in a variety of ways, some of which were just outlined by, by Mike. Uh, and, in fact, they, they have been succeeding in these negotiations um, in pursuit of their goal. Um, they may, uh, and this is more or less what they announce, practically speaking, every day in the press. Um, so uh, they, may, uh, they may, they might agree to a, um, a continuation of the negotiations, but only, I think, probably with the starting point that those are the beginning points, that they will not accept any... any um, anything less than full um, uh, removal of the sanctions. 
And, uh, and, I, and here is where I land. Um, I mean, we're here discussing this because this is a very grave matter. Um, it's grave enough uh, for the President of, of the United States to have written a letter to Khamenei uh, about a week ago, um, urging him to see the gravity of the matter and the great benefits that will accrue to us, him, them, the world, um, if an agreement can be reached and that time is a wasting. The response of uh, the Rahbar, the Supreme Leader, was please go to hell and take the Jews <laughs> with you. Um, so uh, I think that indicates um, that, that pra I, I paraphrased a little bit, but that's more <laughs> or less what, what, they, what Khamenei said. And I think it shows you um, the resistance to any kind of concessions and also the confidence that this is, this is going their way and will stay their way unless, unless we were to walk away from it. I think that's, it may become so obvious to, uh, to everyone that there's absolutely no way to get to a respectable deal, even a, a, a fig leaf deal, that it will, will come to an end. Well, thanks, uh, thanks, Halal. And actually, <coughs> what you just mentioned, um, it's something I want to transition into. Actually, I have questions about particular details that you all mentioned, and I'd like to get into the details eventually. But first, I want to ask a question uh, that I think um, I'm going to ask you all to answer coming from your own particular angles and your own particular fields of, 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 uh, of expertise. Halal, you say it's a grave matter. Is it really, I guess I'm going to ask you all to answer whether or not it's really a grave matter, or the, whether or not we've been making too big, a big, uh, too big a deal of this during all the negotiations, and the fact is that it is finally a, um, it's still effectively a third world regime in the Persian Gulf. This is not the Soviet Union. We managed to contain and deter the Soviets for nearly half a century. Um, why are we making such a big deal out of the Iranians when you can make an argument, and Mike, I think this is kind of what you were leaning toward, that, um, Look, if we can normalize this regime, calm it down so it's not scared anymore of being toppled from without or from within, and then we get real moderates to come to power, why is this a bad thing? So why is an Iranian, uh, why is it bad that Iran is on the, uh, on the verge of being a threshold nuclear state? I mean, what are the different problems around this? Is, is the condition of that question of the yeah. notion that if they have a nuclear weapon or a more or less guarantee of of having it when they want it, that, that's what would calm them down? Is that, is that the notion, the, the assumption underlying Well, this? I mean, I, I think that that's, I think there are some people in the administration who probably believe that. I don't know if that's a mainstream opinion, but certainly it's an argument that people have made. Yes, the bomb will, you know, part, it's part of the, uh, part of the regime's uh, crown jewel. But also I think, yes, the idea that they're not going to be scared of being toppled anymore as they were nearly in... Uh, uh, June 2009, and as they fear from different regional uh, or even international powers that the regime will be brought down. Um, David, I guess if I, if I can ask you to answer that, yeah. uh, if, right. if you can yeah, answer let me, that. Let me try. I mean, let me yeah. confess. My, my organization is on the left, I mean, uh, but we've had very severe breaks with what we consider part of the left that has, has tried to say that, that we can live with an Iranian nuclear weapon. It, it, I'm not saying you're doing that. Oh, yeah, you're no, raising no, a very, no. very good question. Um, the, 
I don't see how you could stop the spread of nuclear weapons if Iran gets nuclear weapons. Hmm. Um, the, and it may just – and again, we don't use the term threshold. I mean, I, Ray no. uses it. We, in a sense, we felt Iran had the capability to make nuclear weapons starting in 2009, but they, they, they couldn't make it quickly, easily discoverable, stoppable. So, I mean, we evaluate in a slightly different way. Hmm. So we, we live with – you know, living with countries being able to make nuclear weapons is something we, we take for granted. It's when they move to make nuclear weapons that, that, that we see as the real problem. And, and so if, if – if Iran had 4,000 centrifuges, lots of verification, um, I, w- I wouldn't see them. I wouldn't call them a threshold state. I would say say they're, they have a limited program, and, and we're going to worry about what they do um, and, and have to have intensive verification for so you have adequate warning. Well, let me call it this way, adequate reaction time. So if they do do something, you have time to stop it and um, before they succeed. But if they had <laughs> nuclear weapons... I, I don't see how you'd stop Saudi Arabia from moving in that direction. Um, you may see Egypt if it can solidify its power. Um, I mean, I've had meetings with them over many years, you know, where they've said, like, we'll accept the Israeli bomb, but we're not going to accept an Iranian bomb, too. Hmm. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Egypt, the Egyptians, Egyptians have said yeah. and, uh, and none of these things will happen quickly. But I think even in the end, you'd have to worry what Turkey may do. I mean, it may – again, it's part of NATO – but it, it's a very complicated situation now with, with the Turkish government. And, and, you know, and our working assumption is, you know, if you, want, if you don't provide anything to the Turkish government, you don't want Iran to learn about. We do a lot of work on, a, on preventing illicit trade. And, uh, and that's our working assumption with Turkey. So, and, and we know a lot, and Turkey is a very major hub for Iranian smuggling operation. Equipment could be bought in Europe particularly, or, or could be Western equipment bought in China, it can r- be routed through Turkey. And so, and they're not doing a lot to stop it. So I think uh, they may make a decision down the road. So I, I think a, a nuclear weapon in, in the hands of Iran is very dangerous. I, and I'm not even thinking of deployed nuclear weapons. That, that actually then would start formal arms races where you could have a very dangerous situation developed between Israel and Iran, between the United States and Iran. So I'm thinking of sort of what North Korea did, what, what South Africa did, what Pakistan did. They just – they sort of try to get one, and, and you don't know is it really one or is it four, but they just kind of creep across this line and then assert themselves or start acting as if they have nuclear weapons, even though they can't deploy them. I mean, I think that's unfortunately what we've seen is that, that – It'll be, a, in our reckoning, a long time before Iran would ever deploy nuclear weapons. It'd be long after it mm-hmm. had them. And, and, and the impact of them having them um, is what would, I think, trigger a lot of very negative events. I, I, I'm just, just one more question on this front. I've heard different people refer to uh, the notion that what we're seeing with the JPOA is uh, effectively a renegotiation of the, um, of the NPT. Do you think that's accurate at all? No. No, no. I think it's – in- it's actually trying to bring Iran into compliance with the NPT. Yeah. I mean, it's really – the IA has a right to go anywhere in Iran. I mean, that may be hard for some to accept, but under the Comprehensive Safeguards Agreement, it can go anywhere at once in Iran if it's chasing after noncompliance. And, and if you look in the deal or in the agreement, they have something called special inspections that they can invoke. And that doesn't distinguish between military sites, nuclear sites. I mean, they can go anywhere. So, so when they act out their – you know. 
desires to go to a place like Parchin, that's within the Comprehensive Safeguards Agreement. And, and so they're saying that Iran has, has, is not in compliance with the, with the Safeguards Agreement. It hasn't been in compliance for 20 years. And you see in the reports, they'll say, yeah, declared activities, yeah, they, they're fine. But we can't tell you if Iran has secret activities that may be in violation of the Safeguards Agreement. And so this whole effort from an IA point of view is to bring Iran into compliance. The U.S. has taken the position, and, and, and I agree with it, that you have to limit Iran's program because we don't want them building back to a large program where they could just say, okay, we're leaving the NPT. So there's a compliance mm -hmm. side to this, and then there's a worry that, that if they have a large program, they'll be able to build nuclear weapons faster that, or uh, let's mm -hmm. say getting the first nuclear weapon or the second faster than the international effort can be put together to stop them. And so you want a, a limited nuclear program um, with good verification in order that Iran would, have, would need a lot of time to build back to a place where it could go for the bomb quickly. Thank you. Um, Ray, would you care to offer, the, or care to offer uh, an, uh, an answer to the same question? I think the is it really a problem? I, I, I think the core of that question is why does Iran want a nuclear weapon? If, if you accept, that's what it wants. And some suggest it's because of deterrence and others because of ability to project power through such armaments. I think there's actually a connection between the two. If you have deterrence and you perceive certain immunities, then your ability to project power, your inclination to do so is likely to be more aggressive. It may well come to pass uh, that Iran will recognize the lesson that other nuclear states recognize, namely that these particular weapons are, at the end of the day, poor instruments of diplomatic and economic coercion. But that period between achievement of the capability and recognition of that reality is a period of enormous instability in a region which is chaotic and disorderly. I don't think we can be sanguine about introduction of nuclear weapons in the Persian Gulf or to suggest that's an event without consequence, uh, especially <coughs> with the regime that we understand very little about it, its motivations, and we know that many members of its leadership tend to view the international system as a conspiracy, uh, tend to view international impositions as, as unusual and inordinate. Uh, so I, I, I think this is a leadership that comes to his task with certain degree of ideological compulsions that would make it a poor custodian of nuclear weapons. Now, I know every time you say that, somebody comes, well, what about Mao? Uh, uh, he, he, and, and I do think the situation between the two are different. And I don't want to get into the Sino-Soviet conflict and the basis of Sino-American normalization and so on. But I leave it to say that China had certain reasons to be a responsible stakeholder and an alignment <coughs> with the United States given the existential threat that it faced from the Soviet Union. Iran really is one of the first countries that is seeking to have nuclear weapons that doesn't really face existential threats. Uh, so the notion of deterrence and defense are less persuasive than would be otherwise. Uh, and I think it's been it would be reversal of not only failure of diplomacy, but reversal of 50 years of American counterproliferation policy that tries to prevent proliferation of fissile material. And finally, I would say that David, I think, mentioned that, that 
Iran achieving that capability may cause proliferation in the region. That's proliferation as a result of the Iranian threat, but it could also be proliferation because of Iranian activity. The Iranian state has said, and many members of the leadership have suggested, that Iran is willing to share nuclear technology with other states. So you sort of have Iran as an exporter of nuclear materials, centrifuges, and so on, sort of North Korea in a more expansive scale. Uh, that's also a danger of proliferation that doesn't necessarily mean other actors will do it. You know, they say every time some foreign minister of Algeria or somebody visits, they say, you know, we will share nuclear technology with like-minded states. Now, I don't know who those like-minded states are, but it is a state that I think, at least in terms of its declaration, is looking at nuclear technology as a form of commerce. Uh, and that, that is, uh, has its own problems and dangers. Mike? Uh, thanks. <clears throat> I agree with uh, everything that uh, David said about proliferation. I think that's one of our, uh, has to be one of our major concerns. Um, when I worked in the White House, the reigning assumption was um, that, the, um, uh, that the Saudis had a bomb in, es in escrow in Pakistan. Um, that there was no hard evidence of that, but that was just a working assumption um, so that we have a Saudi bomb the day after. People talk about scenarios um, uh, of Saudi Arabia having a declared bomb or uh, just imagine, a, uh, just imagine a, some military transport planes fly from Pakistan to Saudi Arabia accompanied by uh, a fighter escort and they disappear into hangars into which we don't have any insight. And uh, there's, a, uh, there's a, a, a widespread belief grows throughout the region that Saudi Arabia has one. We don't really know. Um, we then find ourselves in a position with um, uh, a, a multilateral nuclear standoff between uh, the Israelis, the Iranians, and the, and, and the Saudis. Um, it's the kind of thing that we've never experienced before. We don't know how that's going to play out. Um, uh, there are theorists in academia who are saying it's going to create a more stable Middle East. Um, I, I, I would prefer not to, not to run the experiment on that, uh, on that theory. Um, uh, just imagine uh, in a kind of scenario like the 2006 Israeli-Hezbollah war uh, in which Iran, Iran steps in and calls on Israel to cease and desist or, uh, or it will get involved. And then suddenly you have, uh, suddenly you have Israel and Iran standing off against each other, both with a nuclear hair trigger. Um, it's a very scary, very scary scenario. The, the second thing is um, uh, something that Ray alluded to, um, and that is, I see Iran as an expansive and destabilizing power, uh, and that is uh, that's my primary concern with it. The um, the reigning assumption among a lot of the foreign policy elite, and I suspect the White House, although I, uh, like I said before, I can't prove that 100 percent, is that um, Iran is a tired power, um, that it's a status quo power, that it's uh, that its revolutionary rhetoric is just that rhetoric. And there's no really any serious policy intent uh, behind it. Um, but I don't see that. Um, I, I, see it as a, as, uh, um, I see it as expanding in Iraq. I see it expanding in Damascus, in Syria, and I see it expanding in Lebanon. They're openly bragging now about also controlling Sana'a as a result of the, uh, of the Houthi rebellion in, in, uh, in Yemen. Certainly that's the way they are perceived by uh, our major allies um, in, in, the, uh, in the Persian Gulf. So I don't, uh, I, I, along with that assumption of the White House, what I perceive to be the White House's assumption, that it is a tired power, there's an assumption that it is going to work with us to stabilize the region.
but I see that if it, if it gets a nuclear weapon, I see greater and greater instability with greater, greater threat tied to that instability for us. Hello? Yeah, well, first, um, I, I would just simply agree with uh, David Albright that the, um, you know, if it's the case, uh, as we've been struggling for many, many years to prevent proliferation, um, not only in the Middle East, but throughout the world, this is a further, uh, further undermines that effort, and in a, in a fairly big way. Um, and uh, that's in itself uh, an important thing. Uh, the, but more concretely with respect to this, the Middle East, it depends a lot on what you think, how important you think the Middle East is to the United States. Um, and um, what you think the role of, the, of Iran is in the Middle East uh, with and without a bomb. Um, we are having, I think, a debate in this, in this country, though it's not really uh, very clear, uh, on very clear lines yet, as to whether the Middle East is important to us. Um, uh, I wanted to, I should have added that, you know, the, the proliferation argument or the, the, the question of proliferation, because terribly much more important within the, pre the context of the present environment of the Middle East, which is uh, a region which has always been violent, but is exceptionally so now, um, given um, the Islamic State, civil wars in Syria and Iraq, and so forth, civil war in Libya. So that ups the ante, I think, for the question of proliferation. But precisely because of that, there's a kind of debate, I think, unstated in this country is whether we should bother with this place anymore, whether it's too much trouble and not worth enough. And, and maybe, we'll, maybe we'll come to a conclusion that that's the case. Um, uh, but um, if we don't come to that conclusion, then we come to the question of what Iran is, uh, represents for the region, and what it would represent for the region with and without um, a nuclear weapon. And it seems to me clear, you know, I, I can't help but agree with, with Mike, and I think also Ray, that the, 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 and this is where we haven't been, we've been listening, but we haven't been listening to them, that they are, remain a revolutionary power. Um, they, whether out of conviction or the sense that they, that's all that legitimates the regime, and um, on top of which they think they are succeeding. Um, I mean, they are, as they, they are boasting of the fact that they, I mean, this is the way it was put in the speech, that they control four mm. Arab capitals. Mm. That's the way it was put, that they are uh, in the ascendancy, and, um, and that, they, um, and that they're, uh, what blocks them is um, the American presence and that we are on the, in the, in the, on the way out mm. and that we can be pushed out. And one of the things that would push us out is having to deal with a nuclear armed state or a threshold nuclear state. How does that come into play? Um, it's a funny sort of situation, it seems to me now, with, with Iran. It has made um, huge progress in its um, assertion of its will with very, very weak and poor conventional forces. Um, <coughs> I mean, uh, the Iranian press boasts of this or that all the time, but uh, these are... <coughs> seem very large and empty. What it, what it has managed to do is to develop a expeditionary force of proxy armies, uh, which are very effective, 
in Lebanon, Syria, now Iraq, and perhaps also in, in Yemen. Um, uh, those, those kinds of military efforts could be dealt with um, or can be dealt with by a determined military effort of a, a more powerful military force, wh whoever that might be. It could be us, it might be Turkey, uh, potentially Egypt. But, that, but such efforts become very much more complicated when, um, when the state that's pursuing them and you're trying to uh, confront, in Iran in this case, has a nuclear weapon or could get one. And I think um, there are a variety of ways in which the bomb is, is desirable for, for, for Iran, but one of them is, is to um, secure the way in which they have been, have been most successful and the way in which they are most vulnerable to, to opposition. Um, I'm going to uh, open it up shortly uh, to questions, but first I have a, um, the questions from the audience, but first I have a, a few detailed questions of my own. They're very, very naive, of, of products of my imperfect uh, understanding, so I will ask all of you a, a question like this. David, if you don't mind, if I can start with you. Why, um, why, is, why would 4,000 centrifuges be okay? Why is that? If you could explain what is it about that number, because I've heard different rumors here that, that the Iranians are talking about, that there actually may be a deal on the table and they want 4,500 centrifuges. Okay, yeah, I, in our view, from a scientific engineering point, 4,000, 4,500 doesn't differ. Mm -hmm. But what, what, what we did, and we did this last fall and winter, is we work with uh, centrifuge experts and we created a set of criteria. You know, what, what, in a sense, how much reaction time do you want? And, and in our discussions, and this may seem naive, six months was a reasonable amount of time um, to pick and, and so you could react. And what, and what do you react against? Well, you want to react and stop them before they have enough weapon-grade uranium for a bomb. And so if you take that, those conditions, you can then, through what we call breakout calculations, which are essentially you're modeling Iraqi or Iranian centrifuge plants that would be making weapon-grade uranium, you can then convert that into the number of centrifuges. And then you also have to feed in, you know, how much low-enriched uranium they may have because if you're going to make weapon-grade uranium, um, you know, 70% of the effort goes into making 3.5% enriched uranium. It's not linear. You know, if you have 20% rich uranium, you're 90% of the way there. And so what that means is you can just do it faster if you develop these stocks of 3.5%, 20%. And so we assume they would have a certain amount, enough of the 3.5% and a certain amount of the 20%, and that led us to a value of 4,000 centrifuges, and, and, and that became our, our baseline. Now, the administration did it differently. And, and, the, and the breakout calculations can differ. Our, ours are, are, are certainly not worst case. Uh, others would have, uh, have lower numbers of centrifuges for six months. Um, the, we call our, ours minimal uh, because the Iranians have, have problems running centrifuges. They break unexpectedly. They, they, have, to, they have emergencies unexpectedly. And, and so it could be, it could be longer, but, but ours are by no means worst case. Um, and the, um, 
just forgot the point I was going to make. Okay. Let me, <laughs> let me stop. Right. We'll come back yeah. around in a second. Um, Ray, my question uh, for you is, you said before <laughs> that it was June 2009 that, um, that we lost that we lost that third faction that yeah. you were describing. Look, is there any way, is in some ways, uh, is the JPOA supposed to bring that faction, can it bring that faction back? I mean, because you spoke very interestingly before about how it's also a political instrument uh, meant to empower Rouhani. Um, so can it do this, can it serve this purpose as well? Or these guys are gone? I, I think they're gone in a way the Islamic Republic thinks about political factions today. Uh, and that's, as I said, it's an extraordinarily unique period, unique in history of the Islamic Republic. The left has always been there. And sometimes it has managed through elections to actually assert some control over institutions, such as presidency or the parliament. Uh, the left at this point is, I think, permanently excised from body politic. Uh, and, that's, mm -hmm. and the left was always the reform and its successor, in some ways, the Green Movement, were always the faction that was most interested in domestic political liberalization. And that had foreign policy implications because they thought that as sort of a contested and uh, Iran being at loggerheads with the international community creates a domestic environment that is not conducive to liberalization. So for them, liberalization at home and Dayton abroad were sort of co-joined. That faction is gone. Uh, at, at least in the Islamic Republic, the Khatami and Musavi, Karubi, and those people. Many of them uh, are still lingering in jail. Mm. This is what we don't talk about much in this country. There's been a lot of discussion about Jason Rezaian, the Washington Post uh, uh, correspondent who's, who's been in prison, and that's justifiable. But there are a lot of Iranians uh, in aftermath of 2009 that continue <coughs> to be imprisoned without judicial process, mm. hearings, and so on, as a result of the Stalin's show trials. Uh, none of that has changed. The political atmosphere, I think, is repressive. Um, everybody knows about the executions. Uh, but to be fair, that was never Rouhani's point of departure. His point of departure was not that he's going to liberalize the system. <laughs> His point of departure was and Ali Khamenei's point was that the elite comes together. Ali Khamenei mm. is a very astute student of history, uh, if nothing else, and he recognized one thing in aftermath of 2009, that one of the principal problems for the Islamic Republic was the fragmentation of the elite, because he thought fragmentation of the elite fed popular discontent. So mm. he wanted to unify the elite, and he succeeded mm. to unifying the center and the right. So Rouhani had to pay a ticket price to be yeah. part of the reconstituted Islamic Republic elite. And that means essentially leaving the third rail of Iranian body politic in its permanent suspension. Uh, what the JPOA will do, uh, or, or potentially successor arms control agreement, uh, I, it, it, it will contribute, I think, in some way, it's fair to say, to the longevity of the Islamic Republic. I, I, mm. I do think it's fair to say, and I think it's incontestable, that nuclear weapons have contributed to the longevity of the Kim dynasty in North Korea. Uh, and I think a similar degree of nuclear agreement can actually not just infuse commerce and funds into the Iranian system, contribute to its international legitimization, and therefore prolong the life of the regime. Uh, I do think we'll get to the post-Islamic Republic period, uh, because the business model simply doesn't work. 
Uh, How does but, that happen? Uh, there's a line in... I mean, isn't, isn't this what the administration is trying to... I mean, that's how I imagine it. It's what the administration does want to do. It wants to forge some sort of Persian perestroika and have real moderates come and You know, real the, the Gorbachev model is not the way that despotic regimes will collapse because they have 25 years to study that model. And they sort of know what the, what the points are of vulnerability. And Khomeini recognized that in 2009 when he, when he did what he did. How the Islamic Republic collapsed, there's a line in the Hemingway novel, I think it's Sun Also Rises, when one guy says to the other guy, how did you go bankrupt? He said, first gradually, then abruptly. I think the system is now without legitimacy. Hmm. It is hollowed out. It relies on security services that may not prove reliable, and it has a sullen population that disenfranchised and, and, and aware of the deficiencies of the state and who's responsible for it. That is a dangerous brew. Um, Mike, I'm going to come back again to your great line. Uh, the reason I want to come back to it is, um, I believe it was a, a faction in the court of the Persian king, that that's what the administration is. Look, you, you, put a, uh, you seem to be putting a bad gloss on this. Isn't this what, you, uh, what policymakers are supposed to do, to look, into, uh, to look into foreign governments and see if there are different ways to turn them around so that they serve so that they serve their own interest or is this basically playing a small ball from from uh, from the white house what what what's the, what's the problem with it and what does it say about uh what does it say about america's international standing as well as our regional standing well it would be it would be brilliant if if this is what were actually happening but i i agree with ray uh the the presentation of of Rouhani as one of the part of the the genius of the Iranian diplomacy was to sell to us the idea that Iranian politics are a mere image of American politics. So you you hear over and over again from the Iranians, and now it's often repeated in press reports in American in the American press that well they have their hardliners and we have our hardliners, people like me, yeah. and uh, and we need That's this. A good uh, point. And, yeah. and, and, uh, You're our Qasem And we need yes, I'm the and and, and therefore. Therefore, what we need is, a, um, is an agreement that will give the Iranians what they need in order to defeat their hardline. Enough of a, a, enough of a, um, a face-saving <coughs> concession from the United States, a, a concession that will allow the Iranians to save face, um, that, will, <coughs> that will prop them up. Now, we were, what, what's wrong with that? It, well, it clearly doesn't work. We were first told when this line was sold that what they needed was, a, was, was just a symbolic program that gave them the fuel cycle. So we shredded six Security Council resolutions that said they shouldn't have the fuel cycle until they, uh, until they uh, satisfy the international community that they're in compliance with the NPT. Uh, and we shredded those. And, um, and then they said, well, no, we actually, we actually need more than just a symbolic uh, uh, control of a fuel cycle. We need uh, – uh, what, we, what we told ourselves is they need a little bit more than that. Than, uh, so it has to be a little bit more than a fig leaf. So then we offered them shorts. Uh, and then now we're told, no, actually, they need an industrial-sized program. Uh, and so we're now at the point where we're saying, well, suppose we give you the industrial-sized program, but we disconnect uh, imp- uh, important parts of it. And so our line, is, our line is shifting, and they're getting what they want. Now, if they, uh, uh, if they come up, let's say, next week, and they say, you know what, we're going to accept tempor- temporary limitations, and we're going to have 4,000 or 4,500 centrifuges. What the administration is going to say is they're going to say this is an historic deal. 
Iran has made a strategic choice to come into compliance with the NPT. Clearly, this is the direction. This is incredibly positive. We have to give them more sanctions relief, and we're going to move, uh, uh, we're going to move forward with the negotiations. What they're actu what's actually happening, though, is that the, we're paying them to negotiate. They're getting sanctions relief, which is the greatest instrument we had to, uh, to compel them. We're giving up that instrument. In other words, we're paying them to negotiate a little bit more, and we're giving up the leverage that we had. They will take that for two years. They'll continue to work on their research and development on advanced, advanced centrifuges. A few years from now, when they are more legitimate, and the program is more legitimate in the international community, they're stronger with respect to us, then they go to breakout. So for their, from, their, from their point of view, the question is, do we, do we break out now? Do we break out two years from now after being paid with sanctions, with, with sanctions relief? So we're, we're just ceding leverage by the, by the day. We know what it looks like when a regime gives up its nuclear weapons program. We have experience. We know what it feels like when a regime makes a strategic shift. This is not it. This is not it. Well, I'm going to ask you to uh, end this part of the session. Just, uh, if you can give a, uh, if you can give sort of a larger context to what this means. I mean, look, we're looking at uh, we're looking at regional history, and both the Persians and the Shia have typically been on the bottom. Does this actually does this change the regional order in the way that 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 the United States will wind up happy with? Or what? I mean, what does the regional order look like? Not necessarily after November 24th. I'm not sure the regional order will change that profoundly next week. Um, but in time, the um, way things look now. Okay. Uh, uh, so we're back to history. Yeah, uh, sure. Various versions of history. I, I want to say before I address that is, uh, but it's connected with it, is what uh, Mike was just talking about. I mean, uh, would you raise it actually with your question? Your allusion to Gorbachev and Perestroika mm -hmm. and so forth, and and one should take a look at that that history. Did we bring, did we create right. Gorbachev? I mean, is that what happened? Um, no, of course not. Uh, well, you know, I, people right. might argue that, but but the point was we we've been at this business before of trying to manipulate a foreign regime uh, hostile to us, which was presumed to have various factions to our to our benefit and arguably to theirs. And the question is, what's, what's our record at that? Now, uh, the, I think the Cold War record is relevant because that was a regime we really understood a lot better <laughs> than the Iranian regime. It was closer to us in, in its principles and its history. Uh, whether that we would understand this regime and would know how to manipulate it for in general reasons and also for the reasons that, that Ray mentioned, that there's been a transformation of the regime it no longer permits that. As for the more general question, um, the, as things are going right now, the region is being um, uh, uh, is is picking up sides between radical Shiites and radical Sunnis. That's that's the situation. That's what I mean. It, it, if was not the case that the Iranians felt that way, um, the people who run the Islamic State feel that way. Publicly announced that, um, in several different ways, that their immediate object is to uh, destroy Shiite power. And they said this after they took Mosul. Um, the uh, their uh, their spokesman said something like, uh, "Don't think we'll be fit, we'll be done with things when we take Baghdad." 
they have yet to take. Uh, we won't be finished until we've destroyed Kerbala and Najaf, where the shrines are. Um, and just the other day, uh, the a statement in which uh, the caliph reappeared, uh, apparently, he gave instructions as to who, you know, the, the order of targets, and the order of targets are uh, first the Shiites, then the Saudis, then us. That was more or less the, the list uh, of instructions of how to proceed. So they're going to make this fight about that. Um, and um, Iran itself uh, waffles about whether, you know, what exactly it represents. It wants to insist that it represents all Muslims and so forth, but um, on the ground it's mostly represents Shiites. So uh, part, of the qu part of the answer to your question depends on how the fight between Iran and its alliance, I mean, or now empire, I would call it at this point a kind of empire because as it's, uh, this fellow said the other day, they control things in four other capitals um, and maybe others as well in the near term. Um, you know, how that, how that fares versus the Islamic State. Uh, at, on present, you know, on present assumptions, I don't really know, but right now, the, uh, perhaps partially for the reasons that Mike Duran has mentioned, um, the, the United States policy is to aid and abet Iran. So Iran would be presumptively the winner of that, that struggle. Um, from everything they say about what their purposes are and how they view us, uh, I think n no good is to be expected from that, uh, for us and for anyone in the region that opposes them. Thank you. Can Thank I you. just say one yeah, thing Ray, about please. the sure. debate, about the debate, about the debate, <laughs> about right. the discussion about Iran? Because uh, if you kind of, and I'm not part of the council, the, the administration officials who work on these issues have a very different <coughs> self-image of themselves than the one that, for instance, Mike does. They think of themselves as hard-nosed, tough guys negotiating an impressive arms control agreement. And they think of their critics as ideologues and partisans. Partisans who, don't, who want to exploit this issue for political reasons and ideologues who don't want an agreement at all. <coughs> their critics view them as knee-jerk folks who are just mm -hmm. determined to placate the Islamic Republic. I think this is the issue which everybody actually talks to those that they agree with. And the White House, I think, talks to sort of enablers and legitimizers. You can go through weeks of having Iran discussions that are on parallel universe different people talking to different people without interchange. I mean, this panel, we have more diverse views. David, as mentioned, he's ISIS of the left, which is different <laughs> from ISIS, <laughs> which differs from ISIS of the right. Yeah. Uh, the ISIS of the right is galloping across Iraq. And uh, the administration may find both ISIS of the left and its breakout times as displeasing as ISIS of the right and what they're doing. But so, but, but I, but, but if you kind of look at it, I, I haven't seen this, and maybe it's true in other White Houses, when you just kind of clamp down. You have a self-image, you have a view of yourself, and you have a view of your detractors. And 
there is a much more of a dialogue between political factions in the Islamic Republic. They have no, no, no. They have arrived at some consensus positions because it's a more of a consensus government. You hear things with the administration or those who presume to speak on his behalf suggesting, oh, we have to have an agreement before the new Congress comes. You know, we have to sneak Sally through the alley. Uh, you know, <laughs> how does this work in a democracy? I mean, I, maybe David and others who've been around this issue as long as more than I have, I haven't seen it this polarized before, but that's just something. The debate about the debate mm. is kind of strange in this city today. Okay, D D David, you will, uh, Yeah, I, I want to say two things. One is um, I, we have found, and I mean we, ISIS and its technical community, the administration willing to engage on negotiating provisions. Um, there, we've had multiple meetings with them since October. We heard things before the JPA was negotiated. We had the provisions of the JPA. Um, we've had endless discussions on the technical provisions. I don't want to overstate it, but, but they've had an approach that they want to bring in people to talk about the, what's the best thing to get, looking for loopholes that need to be filled. So I, I, it's a little different than what you're saying. Now, again, this is on a, you know, in, a, in the nitty-gritty, and, and, and so we've had no problem with access, having our views ex uh, accepted. I've had just in the last week, I mean, we, we detected early on that Iran had started to enrich in an advanced centrifuge that it had never enriched in before. Um, and we had that information to the negotiators, not just to the government, mm -hmm. probably by Friday at noon when the information was fresh about 8 o'clock in the morning uh, at, from the IA report. So, so we found them very, very interested in, 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 out, in input on the provisions mm -hmm. to seek and always trying to uh, work for tougher conditions and don't see them wavering very much on their core conditions. You step out of that, and we had an experience where a group called Atomic Reporters said that our work, you know, we lied about the IR-5, it had always enriched, and we were just making this up in order to attack the administration. So, so in that sense, we find, you know, what Ray said is very true. We find the, the reality versus the Washington debate, and, and in this case, a group in Vienna, very, very different and, and not in sync at all. And, and I find the Washington debate and this thing that happened with Atomic Reporters just flat-out destructive and, and, not, and no relationship to the truth. And, and so people I, – I do worry that there's been a desensitization that it's very easy to call people names now and that, and that yet it, it is, is not helping and, and the administration has been more than willing to engage in trying to make their positions sounder. At least on a not not the, not the way Mike's talking about. He's talking about a much bigger picture of things. Right. You know, I am in the, in the more in the details, mm -hmm. but in that sense, the administration has been very open to input. I think Mike wanted to respond, and then Halal wanted to respond as well. Um, I, I I think um, was re reacting to what Ray said. It's interesting to ask when President Obama goes to bed at night and he's tossing and turning and thinking about that damn Iranian nuclear pro problem that he's got to deal with. What's the what's the what's the worst part of it for him? Is it the fact does he does he does he toss and turn saying uh, I can't stand that guy Khamenei and Qasem Soleimani they're they're really horrible or does he say God I hate Netanyahu and I hate the Republicans in Congress? Um, and in in my view the answer to that question is is is, is obvious about who. 
who is the biggest impediment to the to, to getting what he what, what he wants um, and that I think is the the problem because I am looking at it in this much this much bigger level I see something very clear just what Ray said the Iranians have closed ranks they have stayed staunchly supportive of Hezbollah they've stayed staunchly supportive of of um, uh, of of Assad, and they've expanded the supportive of their allies in Iraq and expanded the militias there and um, uh, and elsewhere. And what have we done? The president has has fallen out with Congress. Not uh, he's at, at loggerheads with Congress on the nu- on the Iranian nuclear question. He's at loggerheads with with the Israelis on the nuclear question. He's at loggerheads with the Saudis on the Iranian uh, uh, on on the Iranian nuclear question. So um, rather than creating a unified Rather than creating a unified um, alliance against the Iranian nuclear weapon, rather with, than, than working with people like David and coming up with, a, with an absolute red line and a very clear definition to the Iranians of if you want to come out from uh, under pariah status, this is what you need to do, and then selling that broadly at home with the Israelis in the West, he has worked behind the backs of the Saudis and the Israelis with the Iranians. He's let his red line slip throughout the, uh, the last year and, as I said several times already, ceded leverage as a result. Well, look, well, let me just make, quickly, Halal, before I give it to you, Mike, let me just say, let me try to make part of the administration's case. It's the Israelis are, or Netanyahu's making a lot of noise. The Saudis make a lot of noise. You have people who, you know, you have people who have very close relations with the press. And in a sense, the president, the White House is pushing back and saying, why does Israel and Saudi Arabia get such a large say in this? This is about American. This is about American strategy in the Persian Gulf. And I know how important the Persian Gulf is to us. I think that this is what's right. I'm the elected president of the United States. To hell with the Israelis and the Saudis. Why? I mean, I, so why is that a problem? Is it is it that the president is entirely wrong? I mean, not about pushing back against, you know, Jerusalem and Riyadh. Are you, you're asking yeah, me? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, first of all, it's bad. Forget about anything else. It's bad negotiating technique, right? The Iranians, they have very good negotiating technique, right? Rouhani sits down and he says, I'm the good guy. I'm, I'm, I'm sweet. I want to cut a deal with you. And if you don't cut a deal with me, you have to deal with these sons of bitches over here. Right, and what? Uh, so, in other words, he he presents himself to us as having a gun uh, a gun to his head. President Obama has put a gun to our allies' heads and said, "You know what? I want to cut a deal with you. I'm desperate to cut a deal with you, and I'm not going to leave this room until we get a deal." Right? Which is an it's like going to a used car salesman and say, "I'm going to get it. I'm going to buy a car from you today, and believe me, I'm going to do whatever it takes to buy a car from you, and I'm going to get." I'm, I'm, I'm dedicated to this. You know what? I talked to my wife, and she's given me carte blanche to pay whatever <laughs> I need to pay. Right? Uh, so you, you, who's going to pay the higher price there? The guy who's hold, who said he's got a gun to his head or the guy who says, no matter what, I'm going uh, 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 to cut a deal with you? Hello? Yeah. Uh, first, I want to say that I'm, I'm very happy to hear <coughs> that from uh, David Albright that the administration has been – people uh, on the technical side have been – seriously considering what you guys have to say. <coughs> um, and uh, I, I, I'm very pleased to hear that because it would mean if they, if they <coughs> stick to their guns, if they stick and hold the red lines firm, then maybe one of two things will happen. Either they will really get a, a decent deal or it will be clear that no decent deal is, is available and then we can <coughs> think clearly about this and not just go round and round this maypole again. Um, the, the, on the, but 
of course, all that operates in the, uh, within um, the umbrella, or if you like, the direction of the administration itself. And um, here I relate to uh, Ray's point about the character of the, the discussion here. It seems to me what's most unusual about the present discussion is not that um, the president of one party doesn't agree with partisans of uh, the other party, but that he doesn't agree with his own advisors frequently. That is, he is extremely deeply persuaded that he has a, an insight into the Middle East, its present and its future, which no one else has except for the handful of people he talks to. I mean, if you, and I don't, this is not only about Iran, but it's, uh, it was most on display in the, with regard to Syria. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone, <coughs> you know, people of long, vast, long experience from his own party or centrist members of the Republican Party, uh, members of the military, uh, all gave him advice or expressed views that he absolutely rejected out of hand, which he's still rejecting. Now, his, and his argument would be it's exactly that kind of advice that has gotten us into all these quagmires in the Middle East in the past. They all want me to throw, they all want me to double down in Syria and look at what's happened in the past. Okay, so that, what that is, I think, is an argument, uh, is an argument that says either we'll, we'll, we'll leave the region, period, because the place, and the president actually more or less said that in the interview he gave at the New Yorker. Uh, it was no longer the remarks in the spirit of the Cairo speech that, you know, we've been, the, the poor, this poor region has suffered from our, our not-so-tender mercies. It's rather the region is a swamp. Yes. And it's filled with thugs, criminals, sectarians. <coughs> those are the terms he And used. those are just the Americans. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the, who, who, you know, why should we have to deal with this? Maybe, and that's what he sort of said in, in it, maybe these guys can figure it out for themselves. The Shiites and the Sunnis get together, settle on some equilibrium. Those were the words used. Well, we or, may... S oh, or, I'm you sorry. Say, <laughs> or you say, well, uh, you know, the, it won't get that way all by itself, uh, it, but it can <coughs> get that way because um, the size are too divided, so you have to, you know, put your finger on the scale to tip it in such a direction that Someone will take responsibility for this and settle it down, and that seems. And there, the the idea seems to be the Iranians can do that. No one else can do that. Well, we shall soon see. I'm sorry, we don't actually have any time for uh, questions remaining, but some of the panelists may uh, be available for a minute or two if you uh, ask a question rather than make a statement. Um, uh, in any case, I want to thank you all for coming and. Um, We'll see, uh, we'll see what happens on Monday, and we'll see what the future brings. But I also want to thank very much our panelists, Mr. Albright, Mr. Fradkin, Mr. Duran, and Mr. Takei, and thank you to Hudson Institute. Have a nice afternoon, and happy Thanksgiving.